Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try it again. Good morning, everyone. Have you enjoyed the rain? I loved it. I love a sunshiny day. I do not like a sunshiny hot day. And we've had some sunshiny hot days. So I will take a week of rain over a really hot, sunshiny day anytime. Anyone else besides me like that? Yeah, oh, I'm telling you what, I love it. I'm going to start with something I never do, but I heard this stupid joke before the service, so I'm going to, I'm going to share it. Why is a koala not considered a real bear? Because he doesn't meet the koalifications. Okay, we've got that out of the way. I never need a joke from you again. If you hate it, you can blame Tony. I'm glad to be here this morning. Today, we are back on track with Core 52. Um, we've been, you know, sort of moving around. If you're following along, you might have been confused in the books because, with the book because we've, we've been reallocating chapters depending on who's going to jump in and speak uh, when I've been gone this past week. But today, we are back, in tra- back on track. So if you've got your Core 52 books and are following along through the year, you can jump back in and know that we're where we need to be. Today, we're talking about the resurrection. I was talking to John Wisely. He preaches out at Mundo Christian Church. We did a funeral together uh, last weekend. And we were talking about um, early in his ministry, he said, oh, I dreaded funerals. I loved weddings. He goes, it didn't take long before that flipped. <laughs> and I love funerals and I hate weddings. I go, me too. Why is that? And he says something very insightful. He goes, well, at the end, when you make the pronouncement, with a funeral, you're pretty confident that once you put them in the ground, they're going to stay where you put them. With a funeral, with a wedding, I get those confused all the time. With a wedding, uh, you know what I'm talking about. You say, now I pronounce you man and wife, and you hope that they stay that way. Funerals are always easier for me than weddings. You have absolute confidence, the people you're going, that are going to stay in the condition that you pronounce them. I'm going to admit something to you today. When I hear people say that they can't believe the truth claims about Christianity because of the resurrection, I get it. It is out there. Anyone else go, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, little, it's a little crazy. It's a little mind-boggling to even consider if someone said, hey, we buried my, my brother on Friday and he showed up for breakfast on Sunday, I would say, ah, that's exactly, however, what the disciples claimed happened. Today we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus and it's either ridiculous or it's real. Um, either way, we're going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to instruct us. Father, this morning we give you thanks for um, the resurrection. There may be folks here who struggle with that, and I pray that uh, this morning's message would, would help clarify and process some thinking. Um, as we sang earlier, the resurrection is, is to the praise of your glory. The heavens roar out this truth that Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we're here this morning, and so we pray by your Spirit you would instruct us in your word, and in this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. From the moment that the women ran back from the tomb and announced to the rest of the disciples, he is not here, he has 
risen, Christians have sort of wrestled with what the resurrection of Jesus means. I mean, they're in that upper room with all the disciples. Some of them accused the women of lying. Thomas said, listen, if I can't put my hand on those wounds and see with my own eyes, I, I think you're crazy. And then when Jesus does show up, not only to see but to touch, Thomas has to admit, dumbfounded, he confesses, ah, you died, but you rose again. The cross is the symbol of Christianity, but the resurrection is the core of our faith. We can't escape it. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul writes this, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The resurrection of Jesus is the absolute centerpiece of our faith. And without it, everything crumbles. From the very beginning, it is the crux of the message of the gospel that the disciples preached. There, Peter's first sermon in that, in that room in Jerusalem with the, with the crowds of Pentecost gathered around him, he says this in Acts chapter 3. He says, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. That message, God raised him from the dead, continues on. And Luke, in, in, later in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 33, Luke, Luke writes, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This was a continual message they preached. Peter continues this message on and on. In fact, in 1 Peter 1.3, he, he gives this message to those who are reading his letters to the church. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul calls the resurrection of Jesus the truth of first importance. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 through 8. Paul writes this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What does it mean of first importance? Well, it means that the resurrection is the central premise and the promise of the gospel. And it changes everything we think we know about life and death and the span between life and death and even what is beyond life. At every point, however, the story bears up under scrutiny. So we consider the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus is attested to not just in scripture, but also the ancient historians Josephus and the, and the politician and the historian uh, Tacitus. Jesus really existed. And those who say, I don't even know if he was a real guy, have not studied history. Jesus really existed and the crucifixion really happened. He was really buried. Now, all four Gospels make this clear, but if you don't believe the testimony of the Gospels, just consider this. It wasn't an anonymous donor who donated the grave for Jesus to be buried in. It was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is one of Jerusalem's, like, like the, the superior court. People knew 
who the Sanhedrin were. They knew if someone had donated a tomb, and they named him, if someone donated that tomb, then they could easily check that out. And any skeptics there in the early, uh, in the early days of Christianity could have, could have double-checked and said, hey, they say you donated the tomb, did you? If he hadn't, they would have been able to make that clear very quickly and shut the whole message down. This one is where the crux of the matter uh, really comes to the front because the tomb, however, was empty. There was no body there because the risen Christ, not just the Christ crucified, but the Christ buried and risen again, because Jesus risen is such a central point of the gospel and because it was so problematic for everyone, not just, not just the Jews, but the Romans as well, if there had been a body to find, those who were opposed to the message of the gospel would have found it and displayed it for all to see and shut those preachers of the gospel down. The truth is the scriptures never apologize or equivocate around the very simple and straightforward claims that they preach, that Three days after he was crucified and buried, Jesus rose from the grave. He came back to life. There was a stone that was rolled away, and he exited the tomb and left it empty behind him. When you go to Jerusalem, I'm off script right now. When you go to Jerusalem, you'll go to the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's many things about that experience that sort of assault the sensibilities of the average American evangelical, but, but nothing um, can sway me from this um, undeniable reality that there are three distinct religious traditions that point to that place as being the point where Jesus was buried and rose again. We go to the garden tomb, it's a lovely place, but the evidence points to that right there. Three distinct traditions. Within a few short years of Jesus rising, they had identified that as being the spot where he rose again. Testimony of witnesses is... Mm, I think it's persuasive for me. And still, it's been very difficult for some to believe. Even in the New Testament, we see when Paul gets to Thessaloniki, he spends his time teaching the Jews in the synagogue. From the Old Testament scriptures, Acts 17.3 says this, he had to explain and prove from those scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. They were not, um, they were not easily persuaded. In Athens... Paul, we talked about this last week, Paul spends time arguing with and dialoguing with the philosophers uh, there in Athens. And they think he's advocating a new God because in Acts 17, verse 18, uh, it's because Paul is preaching the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. Dying and coming back to life mess with everything we think we know, doesn't it? And so... From the very beginning, we see a few like alternative messaging around the resurrection. Even, even in uh, Matthew, after Jesus has risen again, um, Matthew writes that after Jesus is buried, the Jewish leaders go to the Roman governor, Pilate, and, and ask that some Roman soldiers be placed at the tomb and that a seal be placed on the, on the tombstone itself, on the stone that covers the entrance, so that the disciples don't sort of get it into their heads to try something sneaky and get in and, and get the body and escape and then claim that Jesus has rose again. Now, Matthew tells us that an angel appeared 
rolled that massive stone away, and it, and it is massive. Um, it's a multi-person job to move that stone out of the way. Uh, the, the soldiers were um, overwhelmed by what happened there. They, they fainted, I guess, is how I would describe that. And they didn't come to until the moment with Jesus, with uh, the angels and Mary had passed. When they come to, realizing that their lives are on the line because they have failed to do what they were required to do, they rush off, not to the Roman leaders, because their lives would have been forfeited if they had done that. They had failed in their responsibility, and they would have been killed. But they rush off to the Jewish leaders, and the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers can, can put a story together that explains what happened. Well, the, 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 uh, the disciples came and took the body of Jesus away. In fact, Matthew says that there's still Jews that, that believe this far-fetched story. Let me tell you, if you've ever driven down to Crane and gone into the Navy base at Crane, anyone ever done that? There's a process to get into that Navy base. You have to check in. They have to check your name off. They have to look at your credentials. They have to double check with this person, and make sure they call, and make sure you're supposed to be there. When they finally do, they take your ID, they take all your information. When they finally do, they will open the gate and let you through. When Mary and uh, when the Marys were going to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus, they would have had to gone through a very similar process, knowing they would have to interact with the soldiers who would then have open the tomb so they could go in and do what they had to do. They would go back out and the soldiers would roll that stone away. All of that would have happened under normal circumstances, but of course, nothing like that happened. Now, some still believe that really it was just a, a plot of the disciples to sneak in there and get the body and sneak out. But I look at the accounts of scriptures of these disciples, and it's very hard for me personally to believe that the men who fled for their lives in the garden and didn't show up at the crucifixion while Jesus was still alive could suddenly muster the courage and the ingenuity to steal a body from a guarded tomb, to sneak into a guarded naval, naval base and get a missile out. It's, it's going to, it strains credulity for me. And then start boldly teaching about a Jesus who they knew was really dead. I have a hard time with that. There's another theory. This is the, the swoon theory. Maybe you know this theory. The swoon, where Jesus didn't actually die, but he sort of went into like this deep swoon or this coma um, from the severe pain and trauma of the crucifixion. However, three days later, he sort of comes back into consciousness and he unwraps himself from this tightly wound uh, funeral dressing that would have been around him. He was able to get out of the strips of, of cloths wrapped around his body and then he would be able to appear to his disciples. But to believe this one is a, even a little more incredulous than the first one. Because if every other example of the crucifixion in the, uh, in the ancient world are to believe, this would mean that Jesus would have had to survive a massive amount of blood loss through the scourging, through the nails in his uh, hands, and that the scriptures say they thrust into his side. He would have had to survive that. Then he would have had to endure 40 hours without food or drink. He would have to manage to unwrap himself from the grave clothes. He would have to roll away the stone from the inside. 
he would have to roll that stone away, and then he would have had to travel countless miles going around to find the disciples and the others who would be witnesses to his resurrection over the next 40 days. That one takes even more faith to believe than just simply saying, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. There's a a third theory, and this is the mass hallucination theory. And that's the one that everyone who claimed to see Jesus just really, 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 really wanted to see Jesus. And so they convinced themselves that they had seen him and that he was alive again. But, but the problem with that is that none of the gospel writers indicate that they really believed Jesus would rise again. That was not where their thinking was. And Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be a Messiah, Does that surprise you? But there were others, time and time again, who would rise up and people would think, this is the one, this is the one, and he would get a following and then then Rome would shut him down in some way, shape, or form. And when that happened, most of the followers just went to another Messiah, sort of like politics here in the U.S. One politician doesn't doesn't, uh, scratch our back, we'll just, he's out, we're getting a new one. And this is how they, they treated their Messiahs then. But what happens with these disciples, with Jesus' disciples, they didn't move on. Even after he died, they didn't move on. They dug into this claim that Jesus had risen from the, from the dead. They were convinced, convinced to the point of death. And this is perhaps the greatest proof to me that Jesus really rose from the dead. You see, every one of those disciples exhibited a willingness to die and suffer for this testimony. So from written and verbal histories, we, we know this, that Peter was scourged, scourged and then crucified. He was crucified upside down so he wouldn't dishonor the crucifixion of Jesus. Andrew was also crucified, but the, the, the stories say that he preached to his, his crucifiers until the moment of death. James, the son of Zebedee, you can actually read about this in Acts chapter 12. James was the first of the apostles to be martyred. He was martyred by Herod Agrippa I, who was the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? Who was responsible, and he was responsible for the beheading of James. James was beheaded. John, John wrote the book of Revelation. John was banished to Patmos, assuming that he would die. This sort of a sentence of death to be sent to Patmos. Because of his faith, um, he was sent there. He's the only apostle who didn't die directly because of his belief in the risen Christ, but he certainly suffered isolation. All of the others have similar stories. You can look it up if you're you're interested. Despite the threat of death, none of them recanted from this belief that Jesus had actually really physically risen from the dead. And I don't claim to understand how it happened, but by faith and with a convincing level of evidence, I look at that and go, I, I believe it happened. I believe the truth and the power of the resurrection impacts and changes the meaning of life here and the meaning of life in the hereafter. In John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, Jesus describes himself not just as going to be resurrected, but he defines himself by the resurrection. Here's what he says. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember that order, right, by the way, the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never 
die. And we sometimes put sort of spiritual meaning behind those, those words. But, but if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is stating an actual physical fact. Jesus defines who he is by the resurrection. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I love that phrase, the power of his resurrection. What is the power of his resurrection? Here's where it hits the road for me. The power of the resurrection is the power to embrace life, this life, with confidence. Our testimony is not just that Jesus grants forgiveness through his sacrifice on the cross. That's, that's amazing. We are granted forgiveness through his sacrifice. But the power of the resurrection is that he gives us confidence now because of the resurrection. My sins, my failures, my mistakes can all combine, maybe you're the same way, all combine to create some uncertainty in my life at times. Can God really love me? Is God really with me? At what point does God simply say, okay, Tim, enough is enough. No more grace for you. These are the accusations that the enemy whispers in my ear sometimes. But Romans 8.33 says this. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Because it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, and note this, if you've got Romans 8.33 up, more, note this, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Can you just think about that phrase for a little bit? Interceding for us. As you're thinking about that, consider this. Paul goes on to say, and you're probably familiar with this scripture, that nothing can tear us out of God's hands. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, death, life, angels, demons, the present, the future, the powers above, the powers below. Nothing can take us out of God's hand, out of God's love for us. The resurrected Jesus, sitting at the right hand of God, remember eight, Romans 8, 33, 34? The resurrected Christ ensures that nothing can separate us from God and his love. So despite my failings, despite my questions, despite my anxieties, I can proceed in life with confidence. I have a redeemer who died for me, and he is not building a case against me. He is advocating for me. I love that. God is not keeping track of all the ways that I screw up. No. He is cheering me on and pushing and directing me to make the right choices. In fact, I'm off script again, but guys, if you're ever in a position where you're like, oh, what is God's will? I have to know God's will before I do this. Can I just ask you to consider something? If this is not the direction you should be going, I firmly believe our Redeemer, our Savior, our Advocate in heaven 
It's going to protect you from horrible decisions if you're listening and if you're being obedient. If you're living a life that is submitted to God, God is going to direct your steps. And here's something else. <laughs> if you make a mistake, and we all make mistakes, if you make a mistake, you do not need to lay awake nights fretting about your eternal salvation because of that mistake. You have an advocate in heaven who is cheering you on. And again, he's not making a list of all the mistakes you've made. He's supporting you and encouraging you and pushing you towards the direction of himself. I'm, I'm going to get back, back on point here. But Jesus did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. We love John 3.16. We know it. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. John 3.17 is as powerful as that. Where John 3.17 says he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, I can live with courage and spiritual confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's nothing that this life and this world can throw at me that I cannot do through the, through the power of the resurrected Jesus. And I can face with courage what the next life puts in my life. See, the resurrected power is the power to welcome death with courage. How many of you guys are parents, grandparents? At some point in time, you will have to sit through some excruciatingly long graduation ceremonies. Yeah, I've had to do it. And if you, if you go, if you've not been, then you'll find out. If you have been, you know this. There's always speeches about how much these kids have appreciated their teachers and the experience... First, many of the teachers ever heard of it, uh, but now they love the school, they love the people they go to school with, they're going to miss them so much, they're going to miss their teachers. Oh, it's a little bit like a little bit of a death in some sense. They'll never forget their time at B&L. But honestly, no one is really that sad. Because why? Because the opportunities ahead of them are so much greater and amazing than what they've experienced so far. And they all know that. They know that the potential in the future is far greater than the joy and delight and fun they've had uh, up to that point in time. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we don't mourn or fear death the way other people mourn or fear death. Death is not the end. Death is merely a graduation. It's an important graduation, but it's, it's merely this transition point from this aspect of life to this next phase of life. It's just a step along the way into a grander and more expansive life. I love that book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. We could preach a sermon on that. Death is that opportunity to do something amazingly beyond anything that we've been able to do up until this point in time. I, on that cruise I was on, there was like multi-course dinners and, and it always began with like a little pre, 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 uh, oh, what's it called? Hors d'oeuvre. I knew I could think of that word. Always came on a little plate, just a little smattering of this, just enough to kind of get your taste buds going and get the, get the digestive juices flowing. And sometimes it was really good and you're like, I'll take some more of that. But, but you're like, oh, but I've got more food coming, so I'll be content with this and just enjoy what's coming next. And this life is really like that little hors d'oeuvre. 
It's just preparing us for the next thing that is coming, the, the real meal, as we might say. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 24 says this, Truly, 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 I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Doesn't come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Death is not the end. And the resurrection of Christ gives us the expectation that we will be raised with him in the future. Are you anxious about today? Are you fearful about tomorrow? Lean into the power of the resurrection. I love this reminder, Romans 6, verses 10 and 11. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, now lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. That same Spirit which raised Christ from the dead lives in you. We used to sing that song years ago. We're going to share in a time of communion here. And as we prepare our hearts, um, there's a reminder that I want to put out there. Today, millions of believers are gathered this morning to listen and learn and worship and serve the resurrected Jesus because they believe at some deep point of their being the statement of faith that many grew up saying, this Apostles' Creed. The Christian churches don't normally lean into a creeds. We have no creed but Christ, uh, one of our early uh, speakers said. And that's true. But I love this statement of faith, and I'm going to invite you guys to say it with me. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, join me this morning. I believe in Jesus. Let's stand together as we do this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. You can be seated. The resurrection is a reminder of one final point. The truth that we will all, believer and unbeliever alike, be resurrected at some point ourselves. We will stand before our creator and our righteous judge. For those of us who have placed our trust in Jesus we can stand there with confidence. Not confidence in our own good works or all the things we got right, but confidence in our Savior and our advocate. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning as we take the bread, we are, we are so thankful for the cross, that symbol of our forgiveness. reminds us of your willingness to stand in our place of judgment. And as we take the cup, we're thankful for the resurrection. That covenant promise you make that you are with us in life and in death and the life to come. You will not abandon us, but you will bring us into eternal life. You died 
and you rose again. And in your resurrection, we find strength and hope and confidence for today and, and, and hope for tomorrow. Great is your faithfulness, God. Meet us in this moment. Stir in us faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.